0: Well, our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, Luke 16, verse 1. I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to that passage. You find that on page 875 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and I trust God will work in us as we work uh, verse by verse through this passage this morning. While you're finding your way uh, there to uh, Luke 16, I did want to share with you this morning a letter I received in the mail, at least part of it. of course, our brother Craig was just up here leading us in prayer for our former pastor, Chris Walker. Um, many of you have uh, been richly blessed by his, I think, over 10 years of uh, preaching ministry here and his family's role in your life. And of course, we now know um, that he is struggling greatly with cancer. He wrote me a letter and uh, of course, it's got salmon on the front. So I guess if you know Chris, that, that fits. Um, He says, "Our family has been overwhelmed by the knowledge that literally thousands of people are praying for us. This has been a very difficult time for us. I am fearful. I am, excuse me. I am not fearful or anxious for myself. After enduring chemo for a while, I can definitely agree with Paul that it would be so much better to depart and be with Christ. Still, I am concerned about the toll this is taking on my family." The prayers of God's people help us to embrace the joy, the peace, and the hope that God's Word promises. We as a church want to lift this family up in prayer, that they can find that hope and joy and peace, which Pastor Chris refers to. And So the elders are calling the church this Wednesday night to gather at 7 o'clock that we would pray for Chris and Christine and and the girls and their family, asking God, of course, uh, even as Paul says, wrestling with God in prayer, that he might heal him, um, but rejoicing in the hope that in in many ways he already has healed him, hasn't he? And that one day, Chris, like the rest of us who are in Christ, will walk into eternity. And so we would rejoice in that hope as we beseech for them. So uh, we we would like you to come this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock that we might pray for this family. And so we'd be pleased if you would do that. Luke chapter seven, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter sixteen, verse one. Um, hear now the word of God. He also said to his disciples, "There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that his man was wasting his possessions." And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my manager is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One was faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that You would help us now to not only understand them, but to apply them to our lives. I believe there are great truths here that would bring great blessings. If I could use the word great prosperity in our lives, if we would heed them. And yet I think For especially us this morning, the land in which we live, this is a particular challenge to know how to steward the life and the resources in which You have given us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to learn from our Lord that we might glorify You in all we do and say and even give. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In August of 2009, in Fort Worth, Texas, more than 9,000 people from 48 states and 27 countries attended the Southwest Believers' Convention. So many people came from this far to hear from an all-star lineup of preachers of prosperity. One after another enticed the congregation by saying that God wants you to be rich, even fabulously rich, One preacher said, God, I'm quoting here, God knows where the money is and he knows how to get the money to you. The New York Times was there. They wrote a story of it, quoted these individuals saying they spoke of private airplanes and boats, a motorcycle sent by an anonymous supporter, vacations in Hawaii and cruises in Alaska, designer handbags, a ring of emeralds and diamonds. These are all examples of what could be yours if your faith is strong enough and you give to their ministry. Paula White, who just last weekend led our nation in prayer, at the Trump inauguration, would agree with these sentiments. Her Easter message in last year, 2016, from John chapter 11 verse 44, the passage where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Her application from that was, if you would send her one thousand one hundred and forty-four dollars, reference to John 11:44, she in turn will send you a prayer cloth, which contains resurrection power. I quote her saying, whatever is dead in your life, the prayer cloth will bring it back to life. So for the low, low sum of $1,144, you can have life brought into the dead areas of your life, including you can have resurrection power from the debt and financial oppression in which you face. Jesus also, by the way, spoke a lot about money. His message is slightly different, isn't it? If you've been paying attention, even in our study of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus continues the returns to this theme. For instance, in chapter 9, saying foxes have holes and birds of air have nests, but the Son of Man has a motorcycle given by anonymous supporter? No, pray not. Private airplanes and boats? No. Nope. He says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he says, follow me. It says in chapter 12 and verse 15, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of His possessions. And in verse 33, sell your possessions and give alms. Provide yourself with purses in heaven. In chapter 14, he explains, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We shall discover in chapter 18, God willing, the Lord will announce, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, Zacchaeus will say to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And Jesus will reply to him, Today salvation has come to to this house. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and He said, truly, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has just put in more than all of them. And famously in chapter 16, the passage before us this morning, He will announce to us, you cannot serve both God and money. It's not an option. Today in our study of Luke's Gospel, we we begin Luke 16. Now, if you've been following along in Luke, Luke begins in the early chapters of Luke, what we might call the Galilean springtime of Jesus' ministry, very popular and little opposition. And the whole point of early Luke is a announcement of who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. And, and with Luke, we, it culminates in Luke 9 where Peter confesses him as the Christ. And then he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and God echoes Peter's Confession saying this is my son. He's transfigured there. Comes down the mountain. And the Bible says in Luke 9 verse 51. When the time drew for him. When time came for him to be drawn up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from Luke 9.51 all the way through Luke 19 is what's called the travel narratives in Luke's Gospel where Jesus is traveling from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in order to pay for our sins. It's not entirely chronological, but it is during these middle chapters of Luke's Gospel that He explains to us not who He is, but instead who you must be if you are to follow Him. What is a disciple? He does as much in Luke 16 here, telling us what we must do as his disciples. In fact, Luke 16 is an interesting uh, chapter in Luke's Gospel. You can really divide it into three sections, which I will, uh, God willing, as we come into the coming weeks. The first section is all about money. The second section is about divorce. And the third section, wait for it, it's about hell, right? So you got one chapter in the Bible, you got money, divorce, and hell. Right? All of our favorite topics all put there together. Okay? So if you want to kill church growth, I don't know what the church growth experts would say. Luke 16 might, might help you in that cause, but I trust it is God's great wisdom for us. And if we would yield our life to the teachings of our Lord, well, as I prayed, great prosperity. I could use that word in our day. will come into our life, great fruitfulness indeed. Of course, we don't like it uh, often, do we, when the church talks about money. We don't, in fact, like to talk to anybody about money. We just don't talk about money. I find that somewhat interesting. I, I will, I will uh, with a friend of mine, a man, I will, I will not hesitate to ask him about his marriage. I won't hesitate to ask him about his purity. I won't hesitate to say, how are you loving your wife? I won't hesitate to ask him, how are you spending time in the Word? But how many times have you ever said, hey? Let's talk about your giving. Let's talk about your materialism. We don't do that. We we don't like to talk about how we handle our money. And and raise the question, why? It's just money. Just stuff. Well, maybe Luke 16, verse 14 has the answer for us. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They don't want to hear it either. Why? Because they loved money. And I, I wonder if you would just ask God, even now as you sit there, as we're about to consider this passage, thank God, do I, do I love money? Help me to see the truths here. Work in my heart as we study this, um, this passage before us. Before we do it, just a couple notes. Uh, I want you to know before I talk to you about your money and your giving, the first thing you should know is I am not paid on commission. OK, and so uh, this whatever I call you to do is not going to personally benefit me. There's no like diamond studded pinky ring or anything like that. Um, and so just be you can be comfortable there. Second thing I, I want to know is I, I really want to um, talk to you Patrick Henry students for a moment. And and uh, you young people, uh, high school students, perhaps uh, if you're if college is anything for you is anything like it was for me. You're you're already thinking, okay. What, um, you're talking about money. What is that, right? Uh, you know, I heard about that. People talk about that. I haven't seen much of that. Um, and so, what what do you mean money? See, we're, right? Because I didn't have a lot of money in college, and maybe you didn't have a lot of money in college. And and um, I, I I really want. I was praying for you this week because I really want these truths to get into your heart. I really do. Before you have money, one kind of the kindest. I have room to grow here. God has convicted me from this passage. However, one of the kindest things God has ever done in my life is he, he brought me um, to the conviction of tithing my income before I was even a Christian. I, w- I was a, a high school student. I started going to church on my own. We weren't raised in the church. I ended up in a church. And I remember, I remember like yesterday, <laughs> they pe- all, the service kind of stopped in the middle. And all of a sudden, these shiny paints, plates start going around and people will start putting money in. I thought, what in the world is going on here? What are you doing? So I asked somebody, I said, why, why is everybody putting money in these plates? And they said, well, this is how we fund the ministries and, and, and do the work of the church. And I said, okay, well, I could do that. Uh, uh, what, 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 what am I supposed to give? And I praise God, I asked the right person. He says, well, you could start around 10% of what you give. Now, I was working at the mall at this time, you know, my favorite place in the world. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm working there. I'm making like 100 bucks a week. And I said, well, okay, it's 10 bucks. I could do 10 bucks. 10 bucks a week? That's no problem. So I started giving 10 bucks a week. And by God's grace, I've been tithing since the age of 17 for the last, I don't know, 25 years or however long that is. I I started before I got the debt and the mortgage and the kids and all that. And I, I want you to start. No matter how little you have, start early. It's so much easier. The third thing I want to say is that this is one of the most confusing parables Jesus has ever given us. Because we read in the Bible that stealing is bad. And then Jesus tells us a story of a man who steals. And he says, I wish you were like that guy. And it's very, very confusing and very challenging. And the more I study this passage, the more different understandings I have of it. And so, God willing, uh, we will do our best this morning. May he help us um, access the truth in which Jesus gives us in a difficult passage. What I want to do this morning is, first of all, it's the way Jesus lines it out. I'm going to walk us through the parable, first eight verses, and then Jesus waits to the end there to give us the application of the story. And so we'll just do that. We'll go through the parable, and then we'll consider three truths in which Jesus gives about how we might prepare for the future. So the parable begins in verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and the charges were brought to him that his man was wasting his possessions. So you've got a wealthy guy and he has a manager looking out after his money. He's like his accountant, okay? And so the accountant is to oversee the investment accounts. And the owner gets a report about how his accountant is doing the job, and it's not positive. This man is wasting his money. I mean, we've heard stories like this all the time. All these celebrities, they lose everything, but someone's embezzling money, or they're incompetent, or there's mismanagement, and and he's wasting it. There, you see that in verse 1. Interestingly enough, the word waste there in Luke 16, verse 1, is the same word to describe the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son that we considered earlier in Luke chapter 15 as he wasted his father's inheritance in the foreign land. This man's just wasting the money. Well, the, the owner finds out about this, and he calls this man to account verse 2 as we read, and he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, you're fired. Right. You have a few days to put everything right, put everything in order, and then you are, you're out of a job. So the manager wants an audit of all the books, he wants an audit of all the records, and then the accountant's out on the street. Now, I don't know if, if you've ever been fired before. Um, I, I, unfortunately, have been fired in the second church I worked at. I was uh, fired. I don't, some of you have experienced that. That's not a fun feeling, in case you have not experienced it. I, I remember I was uh, let go from the church, and they gave me 30 days severance. I got 30 days of money, and I'm and i and I'm thinking, I gotta. had a one-year-old, and a, my wife was five months pregnant, and I got I got salary for the next 30 days. And I'm thinking, I have to go home and tell my wife, um, I don't have a job anymore. And I don't know, you're not a pastor, or at least most of you aren't, pastors don't find jobs early like to find a pastor job takes like 18 years or something like that it is a very long process okay and and you you're you're you right you just think you know how am i just bought a house how, how am i gonna pay the mortgage how am i gonna keep the lights on i mean everything changes i don't know if you could just imagine what that must be like this man says you're done you're fired and he's thinking just along the lines that i was thinking some years ago, as we see in verse three, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm, a, I'm ashamed to bet. Right, good luck, by the way, finding another accountant job. Right, his options are not appealing. He, digging a ditch, right? I mean, who wants an accountant to dig ditches? Right? Begging? Well, that, that doesn't sound like fun. Right? That's the only job a discredited accountant can get, maybe, is you beg on the street. He says, I don't want to do that either. And then finally a light comes to him in verse 4, and he says, I've decided what to do. I've got it, he says. So that when, when I'm removed from my mansion, when I'm fired, people may receive me into their houses. I know what to do. And he, and he doesn't have a moment to lose, right? He's only got days before he's on the street. And so he begins to act, as we see in verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much money do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He, he said a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and, and write 80, right? This guy has this really clever idea. It's evil and dishonest, but it's really, really smart. And and he, he says, I'm not fired. I still got i'm still in charge of these accounts i'm going to get on the phone i'm going to call each of my master's debtors and i'm going to cut their debt and so he calls one guy and he says well how much do you i says i got a hundred measures of oil he says "Oh, how about this how about we just cut that in half would that be okay right and you can imagine that conversation are you what are you kidding me yeah yeah cut her now just write 50 don't worry about it you could do that yeah i got it covered i'm in charge around here fifty. he called another guy how much do you go? 100 100 measures of wheat he says let's make it 80 how about that would that be okay yeah that'd be okay right and, and by the way the amount of wealth we're dealing with here is somewhere between one and three years of a of, of wages so this is not trifling amount i don't know if you can imagine what it's like have you ever been in debt right you know what that's like ever struggle to pay the bills and some they start coming in green and then eventually they start showing up in pink right and people start calling you, strange people wanting to know where their money is, and, and you can't sleep at night, and you're getting all restless. And one day you get a phone call, and you look at the caller ID, and it's Visa, right? And you don't want to take the call, but you, you you pick it up and say hello, and say, you know, hello, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, do you realize you owe us $100,000? Yeah, I know, I, I'm going to get to it, I promise, just give me some time. Well, we were thinking over here at Visa, we would like to cut that in half. Would that be okay for you? All right. I mean, it would be too good to believe. I mean, what's the fine print? No fine print. Just let's cut it in half. I mean, this, that's what this guy is doing. Let's do Mortgage payment, let's cut that in half. No problem. We'll just take care of it. And why is he doing this? Well, he told us in verse 4. I decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he's saying, my master's going to lose money, but I'm going to be taking care of it because of it. People are going to welcome me to their house. they're going to take care of me until I get back on my feet. maybe I'll find a job out of that. What he's doing is he's reducing their debt to his master, and in the same time they are now indebted to him and he did it according to verse five to each one of his master's debtor. What he did in effect is he t- is he took his master's money and he made himself friends. That's kind of a key and we'll see this in a moment. He made friends with his master's money. Well, the master, of course, is going to get wind of this, but what's he going to do? He's already fired, and he calls call, and call him in front of him, and, and you, you think, I, in fact, I, I, when I was teaching my kids this last night, I stopped there and said, okay, what will the master say? And, and you can imagine, right, what he'll say. It's like, you're a thief, you're you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel, I'm going to sue you for every penny. Look what he says in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness he commended him and you can imagine he's initially angry but then he's got man i gotta hand it to you that was that was smart that was shrewd you're you're a terribly dishonest man i'm so glad you're fired but man you are shrewd right and what's even more surprising now that's surprising then then here comes jesus and he says i wish my followers were more like that guy at the end of verse 8 For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of life. So what is, what is Jesus commending here? Because I don't think he's supporting stealing, right? He's not saying dishonesty is the best practice. What he's commending is that this man acted shrewdly to prepare for his future. He wants us to do the same. He says the sons of the world are really shrewd in dealing with with their own life and their own future. But the sons of light, right, my people, they're kind of dumb, right? They're naive. They're they're acting with the innocence of serpents and the wisdom of doves, right? The accountant's thinking, I need to secure my future. I'm about to lose my job. And, and, and what Jesus is saying, hey, Christian, please understand, sons of light, please understand, you will not have this job forever either. You're going to lose your job too one day. Have you given any thought to what comes next? The, this man's saying, I don't have a lot of time. I got to do something. And Jesus says, I wish my, the people of the light had the same sense of urgency and thoughtfulness to prepare for their future. He wants us to live and make decisions and to, to steward his resources with our future in mind. With the end in mind. And I wonder how many decisions this maybe this past month have you made that if you would have taken better account of the future, you would have made differently. I mean, words you spoke rashly. Decisions you regretted. Purchases you made. I mean, just to be honest, when's the last time you've ever acted like this guy, thinking, okay, I have a future. I need to act shrewdly and prepare for that. I need to start preparing for my future. This is what Jesus wants us to do, and he gives us three truths on how to do it, all dealing with our stewardship. The first being that we prepare for the future by being a steward. The man in the story, of course, is a steward, just like you. Note verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, that's what we're doing now, what we have is another's, who will give you that which is your own? The reality is, my friends, that God owns everything. He made it. He therefore owns it. It is his and we are just managing it. And when you're managing someone else's resources, you don't get to do whatever you want with them because it's not yours. Now, this this runs right into conflict with America, right? I mean, this is our ethos as an American that we work hard and we go to school and and we study hard and we don't be lazy and we earn our way and we better ourselves and we think, okay, this is my money, I've earned it, it's mine. And Jesus shows up and he says, as does the rest of the Bible, no, it's not your money, it's not yours. You say, wait a second, Jesus, I worked for it. And Jesus would ask you, okay, you worked for it with what? Well, first of all, you're alive. That's helpful in making money, right? It's hard to make money when you're dead. Well, that's his gift. You have your health. Who gave you that? He did. You have your abilities and your talents. Where did you get those from? God. You have your favorable circumstances, None of us were born as slaves on a plantation in the 17th century. None of us were born as uh, many of the children that some of you have visited in Ghana in the slums. You weren't born in a Ghanaian slum, were you? You could work really hard in a Ghanaian slum and still not get very far. And so, yeah, you worked hard. I've worked hard. I've worked hard with the life God gave me, with with the health God gave me, with the family God gave me, with the abilities and talents that God gave me, with the circumstances in which God gave me. In other words, I worked hard with everything that He gave me. It's not mine. It's His. Someone got this. His name was David. He's far more wealthy than you or I. And he would pray, Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given to you. We're only giving to you what you've already given to us. Oh Lord, he prayed, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build a house for your holy name is from your hand and all is yours. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you are a steward. Everything you have, everything you are, belongs to God. Therefore, we should do what he asks with what he has given to us. Not to say we're not allowed to take care of ourselves. God certainly allows us to do that. But we need to to handle our resources in a way that honors the one who owns it. And I, I just want to be very strong with you for a moment. I'm doing this because I love you. But if you are not handling your money in the way in which God tells you to handle your money, you are not simply being stingy. You are being a thief. It is robbery. It is not yours. It is God's. In fact, the Bible says in Malachi chapter 3, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? In your tithes and offerings. It's His. We are to do with it what He calls us to do. I just this week read a wonderful little story by John West, about John Wesley. He was a young man living in a kind of a hostel, and he had just bought a, a picture that he had put up on his wall He was admiring the picture, and the chambermaid came into his room to change the the pots. And he looked at her in the middle of winter, and she has his threadbare clothes on. And and he looks at her and says, where's your jacket? And she says, I can't afford a jacket. And so Wesley, being a generous man, reached into his pocket to give her some money, but you know what he found? He found nothing in his pocket. He would write of this event, an event that would change his life, thou have about himself, thou has adorned thy walls with the money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. Are not these pictures blood, the blood of this poor maid? John Wesley, by the way, was making 30 pounds a year at this time. He resolved from that point on, I'm only going to live on 28. So I have two pounds to give to the poor. Next year, his salary doubled. You know what he did? He so I'm going to live on 28. So I got 32 pounds to give his salary got eventually to the 1,400 pounds a year. He continued to live on 28 pounds a year in order that he might give the rest to the poor. Now, all of us cannot do that. I understand this is a different time in a different day. But here's a man who understood, this is not mine. I want to honor God. We need to do what God tells us to do. We may not be able to make those changes overnight, but we need to begin to work that direction. And if you do, notice God will reward you. Look in verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And he who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. He, he says your, your faithfulness with the little I give you is going to be rewarded. If you're faithful with what I give you, then one day I'm going to reward you because I know I could trust you. If you're not faithful with a little, why would I trust you, he says. And in fact, he goes on to tell us what he'll trust us with if we are faithful. Verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, or maybe your translation says worldly wealth, Who will entrust you to true riches? The true riches evidently are a reference to the blessings of heaven, the treasures in heaven. The very little, which he repeats twice in verse 10, is what he gives us right now. And he says, if you can't even handle the little which I give you, how will I trust you with true riches in the life to come? Now, I don't know if you think about your resources right now as very little. Some of you would say, yeah, I could amen that. Um, but right, we, we, God says that what you have right now is nothing compared to what I want to give you in the life to come. And yet we obsess over the very little, with, how, with, with almost no thought sometimes to the, to the future. Preparing ourselves for the future, preparing ourselves for riches. As he said in chapter 12, provide yourself with treasures in heaven. Now what these treasures are and these true riches are, I'm not exactly sure. I don't think anyone knows. But there are glimpses throughout Scripture that we talk about, you know, heaven's going to be different for different people, that we're going to be rewarded for the faithfulness in this life. And it might be pleasures or possessions or certainly responsibilities. Jesus says, if you sacrifice in this life, I will will make up a hundredfold in the life to come. And one day, I think you and I are going to walk into paradise, and we're going to look at at the things that captured our hearts here in this life, and we're going to think, that was so dumb compared to the glory I now have. I see he's right. It was very little. And some may say, okay, well, is there something I could do now? And he'll say, no, you already had your chance. I I gave you little on earth and you weren't faithful with it. How can I trust you with it now? And friends, we need to think this through. We need to start thinking about the future and where we're headed. We need to be shrewd. Are you shrewd? Are you stewarding your resources to prepare for the future? And I don't think this is just about money. I think it's about our whole life. The, the, the talents and the time and the house and the, the life in which God has given us, I wonder, will God one day say to you, man, you were faithful with what I gave you on earth. I want to entrust you with this now. Or is He going to say to you, you couldn't even handle money. Why, why would I give you the true riches? We need to live this life as a steward as we prepare for the future. Second, We prepare for the future by making everlasting friends. Everybody doing okay? Verse 9. I know Craig is. Craig, Craig, you remind me of this accountant here. um, You're very, very shrewd. I mean, Jesus compliments him. Where are you? Prepare for the future by making everlasting friends. Verse 9 and i tell you make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings jesus says make friends with your money i mean this is so bizarre take your money and use it to make friends well what kind of friends well he tells us right Friends who will receive you into eternal dwellings. He's talking about heaven. He says, so use your this is what I think he's using. A lot of people say, okay, whether is the friends God? Some people say that. Some people say the friends are angels. Those might be alternative understandings, but I I think, in light of what we just saw in this manager, the friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings are those who have been blessed by you in this life and even have come to know Christ through your ministry in this life. That, that these are people like when you use your wealth to help a Christian ministry in disaster relief or or some missionaries can go to Kurdistan or or a, a tribe in Papua New Guinea can receive the Bible in their language or a church can be started in Ghana or the pregnancy center can could support women in, in crisis or you adopt a child or educate a, an Indian child in South Dakota right in a Christian environment and you, and you make these friends through your resources these you, you may be someone next door maybe it's a single mom who's having trouble and you say what can i help you i i I know this must be really hard can i pay your light bill this this month so why why would you want to do that you say well the money's actually not mine um i've been given it by god and i think god would be really honored if i helped you in fact god is god is very concerned about you he's so concerned he sent his son jesus into this world to die for sinners that they might receive him Right? You, you would use your money, and not just your money, because how easy is it for us to write checks as Loudoun County type people? Right? We, we make friends with our love and our sacrifice and our hospitality and our witnessing. Jesus says, use the money in this life so that one day you walk into heaven. I mean, how cool would this be? You, you enter heaven and there is a line of people to meet you. And the first guy shows up and says, listen, you don't, you don't know me. I I grew up in Papua New Guinea, a little tribe up in the mountains, and one day a guy came and he told us about Jesus, and I I, I bowed my knee to him. That's why I'm here. But do you know why? How he was able to do that? I found out that he was able to do that because you gave, so he could go. Can, you want to come over to my house and hang out? Man, I'm so I'm, I've been waiting for a while to meet you. That's what Jesus is talking about. Friends that will greet you, bring you into their eternal dwellings out of their gratitude for the love that you have given them because of your faithful stewardship. Jesus says, prepare for the future by putting your money into something that will last. No investment in this life will last. No asset in this life will last. Look what he says in verse 9. So that when it fails, talking about money, not if it fails, when it fails. Money in this life will fail. Guaranteed. You're not taking it with you. Sometimes you'll lose it in this life. I found it interesting to learn that in 1928, the planet's most wealthy people met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Their meeting was the president of the largest steel company, a man named Charles Schwab the greatest wheat investor, Arthur Cutton, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, the secretary of interior, Albert Falls, stock tycoon, Jesse Livermore, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Fraser, and the head of the largest monopoly, Ivan Kruger. The wealthiest people in the world met together in 1928 within 25 years of that event. Charles Schwab was borrowed, borrowing money, died broke. Arthur Cutton died broke. Richard Whitney went to prison. Albert Fall needed a presidential pardon to die at home. Jesse Livermore committed suicide. Leon Frazier committed suicide. Even Kruger committed suicide. When it fails. You say, well, it doesn't fail for everyone. You're not going to lose it. Not all rich people end up losing everything. Really? John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men ever to live. After he died, someone asked his accountant, "So, how much did Johnny D. leave behind?" His accountant thought for a moment, and replied, "He left all of it. You're leaving it all behind. So why not prepare for your future by investing in something that will last? Your wealth will not last, but you can put it something in something that will last. Namely, you could use it to love people and bless people and bring people God by God's grace into His kingdom." You could create friends through it, Jesus says. You could create relationships through it, and, and you know I'm so glad this verse is here. At First, when I first studied, I was thinking, I have don't, this is so weird to me. But the more I studied, the more the happier I am. I don't know of another verse like Luke 16:9. It's not found in any other gospel. I know that. This idea that he's t- see what were was just talking. We we were talking about true riches. I don't know if you noticed. I skipped down to that part. Let's deal with the true riches part. And that's kind of like I, I don't know sure what he means by that but friends that i get relationships i understand and i think relationships is what we truly want what we truly desire right people's houses burned down or blown down by a hurricane and the news reporter comes out and they say i've lost everything but i what i still have my family and that's what counts and they're right you don't need to be a christian to know that what we've been made for what we what we long for is love and relationships and when we are loving other people and and being loved by them in in our life that's wealth and that's security and that's significance and i love this verse because jesus just cracks his door into heaven he says i just want to show you just a glimpse of heaven and what do we see there in heaven Is it crowns and golden brick streets I don't even like the color gold, to be perfectly honest. I don't get excited about golden streets. I don't know if you do. I, I don't think I would look good with a crown on. That does not excite me. Okay? But he opens the door and says, You know, heaven is a place of friendship. It's a place of relationship. Preeminently a relationship with God. But there are people there who will welcome you into their life because of the life you lived here. I love how John Edwards, the great... American Puritan said, preeminently, heaven is a place of love. It's a place of love. And I'll tell you, the love in heaven will be far better than the love here is on earth. In fact, John Edwards, John Edwards expressed that the love that we have on earth is our greatest source of joy, but the love that we have on earth is also our greatest source of pain. Isn't that true? Your greatest pains come from some way, somehow failed loves. And Edwards says, listen, when you get to heaven all all the joys of love will be there but none of the pains in fact he lists 5 ways that the pain of love in this life will be taken away let me just give them to you briefly i think it's so encouraging number 1 we want to be loved we want to love and be loved for our own sake we want to be loved for our own sake i don't know if this ever happened to you but you think someone loves you but they actually love you because they're getting something from you something out of you And when they stop getting that thing from you, then they stop loving you. And that hurts. In heaven, you will be loved completely for who you are. Not what you give or do for others. Number two, we want to love without impediment. You ever find it hard to love? You ever find sin barriers in your own heart, pride, selfishness? I believe I'm called by God to love my wife more than any other person in this world. And yet many times at the end of the day, I think, how poorly have I loved her today? Because of pettiness, because of wounded pride, because of anger in my heart. And I end the day thinking, why am I so unloving to the person that I actually love the most? In, in heaven, you'll be able to love more than you ever imagined. There'll be no barriers heaven will be perfect love without impediment nothing in your heart keeping you from loving number three we want to love mutually right there's something about love when you love you need it to be returned it has to be reciprocated back to you that's what love is how god created it It, you can't just give love and not care whether you get it back and yet how, how many times in this life you've loved someone and you never got that love back well not so in heaven The love you give is always returned to you. Number four, love impacts your happiness. When you love, you link your happiness to the happiness of the person you love. You understand this? Parents, you understand this? If if someone you love is sad, you can't just be happy and joyful and not care. You, You can't be happier than the people whom you love. It's why if you love more than five people, you're always unhappy. Because someone's always unhappy, and then you're unhappy because you're unhappy in their unhappiness because you love them. But you get to heaven, everyone will be perfectly happy forever. And we will be perfectly happy in their happiness forever. Right? Number five, we want love to last. Something about love where you just don't give it and say, okay, I'm in for 20 years, but then in 20 years I'll turn it off. No, once you give love, you want it to last forever. You want it to go on and on. You, you, you can't replace a love. You can, you can love other people, there is no doubt, but you never replace that. We don't want to lose our loves. And the reality is, when you marry someone, one of you is going to bury the other person. I, I, got, I have nine people in my family. One day, one day, there will be one remaining. If God does not come before that, one day, one, one person in my family will see the other eight people die. Right? If, can I can I say this? Death sucks. Right? It is terrible. It is a blight upon this world. And one day, death will be no more. Never again. No more funerals. No more dying. No more sorrow. And the loves in which we have, they will last forever and ever and ever and ever. Tim Keller says we're, we are living in this life like beached whales. Hey. Okay? A beach whale is alive, but not for long, and it's not having much fun. Okay, And that's the life in which we kind of live. We're meant for a different kind of love. The love we have down here is just a shadow of the love in which we'll have up there. We need to get back in the water and to live like we are designed to live. And that is this picture of a heavenly love. And Jesus saying, listen, live your life here so you can to abound the love in which you will receive in which you get to heaven. And can you imagine if we actually believe this, that, that I'm going to live forever in a place called paradise with God and, and I'm going to have these special, unique relationships with people I've, I've been used by God to bring them into faith. If you believe that, I'll tell you, that would change your life. You would never make money at the expense of another person. You would never even think of that as a good exchange of your resources. You would use money to meet people's needs. Right? God doesn't despise money, but he gives it to us, and we would use it faithfully. You would use your money and your resources to, to bless people, that you might make friends forever. This is what God wants us to do, prepare for the future. Are you shrewd with your wealth in this way, that you can create friendships that will survive even death itself? That you, you, my friends, will live forever. Prepare for your future. We need to live in light of this great end. Where we're headed. What we're living for. And if we don't, we're going to make foolish decisions. And we might even choose the wrong God. Quickly, in number three. We need to prepare for our future by choosing the right God. Jesus says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money there is no middle ground here though i think we all would prefer that there were we, we want right? <laughs> only one thing's going to dominate our heart we either live for things or what they give security comfort identity whatever it might be or we live for god you, you can't live for both jesus says And if you try to live for both money and God, you're going to live in constant discomfort. Some of you might understand what that discomfort's like. You have, you love Jesus too much to be really happy in the world. And you love too much of the world to be really happy in Jesus. And so you're constantly torn back and forth. You can't have two gods, Jesus says. And by the way, I would encourage you to choose the real God because money is a terrible, terrible God. Money is a great servant, by the way. Money is a great slave. Terrible master. Right? We, we, we enslave money to use it to prepare for eternity, to bless people, to care for the hurting. But when money becomes our God, it will, it will force us to do whatever we can in order to get more of it. We'll, we'll start putting our hope in it and our trust in it. We'll become dominated by it. Getting more things and thinking about the things we don't have and dreaming about other things. You know, the average American shops six hours a week and plays with their children 45 minutes a week. Our hearts are misaligned. And if we make money our God, it becomes to occupy our heart and our mind. Again, I love the stories of John Wesley who toured once toured a vast estate with a proud plantation owner and, and they rode their horses for hours and hours and only saw a fraction of the estate. And finally, they sat down for dinner and the plantation owner, with great eagerness in his heart, said, well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think of my plantation? Wesley replied, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving it. That's a terrible God. You're going to have to walk away from it. And yet when we, when we elevate in our life, it dominates us. It Often, often uh, we only realize what it's doing in us once, once it's taken complete control. You know Vanderbilt, who was very rich, he said the care of $2 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor said, I'm the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller said, I've made millions, but they brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Henry Ford said, I was happier when I was a mechanic. It's a bad God. It does not give what it promises. You think, okay, if I get this, I do this, I'll finally be secure, I'll finally be comfortable. There's always more. It's always more. You can't serve both. How how do you know then if, if money is becoming your master? Well, John, um, Phil Ryken, a pastor who has blessed me richly, has given five warning signs that money is becoming to occupy your heart. He says if you're anxious about money, you're not trusting God to provide for your needs. You love money and its power to make you feel secure. He said secondly, if all you do is work, you have no time for Christian service, then you love money and have given it authority over your schedule. Third, he said, if you constantly think about things you want to buy, you love money, and it's power to get you what you want. Number four, he said, if you make employment decisions that are spiritually unwise because they pay more, you love money, and you set your plans to get more of it. Number five, he says, if you have difficulty sacrificing giving so you can give to Christian work, then you love money more than what you can do for God's kingdom. Money is a terrible God. We need to be aware of it in our heart. You think, well, what do I do if I find it's power in my life? What do I do if I feel like I'm being enslaved by it? Well, the thing you do, my friends, is you start to give. You start to you see giving is is a surrender of your life to God's authority and God's agenda. When you give, you what you are affirming that that Christ is your King, that this is His resources. Giving dethrones money and puts Jesus on the throne in your heart. It breaks that gravitational hold that money has on us and creates this new center of gravity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we begin to give. In order that we might loosen this hold on our life. That we might make friends forever. We might provide for ourselves true riches in the kingdom to come. And yet when I even say that, here's my fear. My fear is as we end our time this morning, is think, okay, this is just another religious rule I have to do. Okay, now I I need to start giving, okay? And, And that's not what I don't think Jesus is asking at all. It's not what I'm asking. God wants you to be cheerful in your giving. He doesn't want more duties upon you. He doesn't want a new religious acts. He wants a new love. He wants you to see. There's so much greater delight in Christ that you are happy and generous to do. There's a story in the Bible where there's a famine in, in Jerusalem, severe famine. People are dying. Christians are dying. And the Apostle Paul is traveling around and he is collecting an offering. He's saying, "Listen, guys, you know, there's our brothers and sisters. You never remember they don't I mean food. They're they're dying." And I need you to give. And then he says, "Even though I'm an apostle and I have authority, I'm not going to command you to do it. I don't want to make you do it. I don't want to give you another rule to obey. But you need to understand this: that that you know, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was, you know, this first right, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor." So that through, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Jesus Christ, infinite wealth, infinite. I mean, owned it all. Literally, he has it all. Infinite privilege, and if he kept all that wealth, my friends, you and I would die in spiritual poverty. And yet, he chose to forsake his wealth. He for, chose to forsake his, his his privilege. I mean, the man was born in a barn. He gave it all up, right? Why? So that He can make you eternally rich. Jesus emptied Himself of all His wealth to make for Himself eternal friends. He is the shrewd servant. He is the one who says, I will use all of my resources in order to make friends forever. He did it by going to the cross there and dying for our sins to turn enemies into his friends, to forgive our sins, to welcome us into God's family. And the Bible announces over and over again, if you would confess with your mouth that, that Jesus is your Lord, that you would say, money's not my Lord, things aren't my, my Lord, my house, my possessions aren't my Lord, you're my Lord. If you would confess that, you bow your knee to Him, that's called repentance. And you would believe in your heart that, that God raised Him from the dead, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He paid your debt, and He conquered death for you, the firstborn from among the dead, that you may walk into eternity. If you would believe this, the Bible says, you will be saved. Saved forever. By the blood and the work of Christ. Not by your works. Not by your giving, God forbid. We are not saved by what we give. We're saved only by Christ. But if you would let that capture your heart. If you would see the eternally, infinitely wealthy Son of God naked. Hanging on a Roman cross. Dying in His poverty for you. So that he could take you, his enemy, and make you his friend forever. You would then look at your money and say, you are a terrible God. Look what he has done for me. I I want Jesus, not money. And you would say, in fact, I want to use my wealth just as Jesus did. To bless others. That you would delight in His costly grace. And because of it, you would become, from your heart, generous and shrewd. Living in light of eternity for the glory of God and the eternal welfare of those around you. Our Father in Heaven, help us to cast our eyes upon Christ. We are besieged moment by moment in this world to cast our eyes upon money and thanks over and over again. Help us, Father, to look beyond the lies and see the glory and the gain that we have in following Christ and serving Him and loving Him. Let us see what He has done for us and let that change us Because once we see what He's done for us, we no longer need money to provide for our security. We have it in Christ. We don't need money to give us an identity. We have it in Christ. We don't need money to say, look at me, I drive a fancy car, wear fancy clothes. We We have our identity in Christ. We don't need what money offers us. And also, we're free now. Money just becomes money. It's no longer a God. It just becomes money. And then we get to use it not only to bless ourselves by Your grace and our family, but we can bless others through it. Just as You've shown us. Change us. Transform us. I have room to grow, Father. I have so much room to grow. Help help me. Help my family. Help my brothers and sisters. Not that we can live for our own wealth. Wealth would just want to matter to us. Your glory and Your kingdom would. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.